coming up on the Louis Diaz podcast. Just feeling useful somehow for the world, feeling like there is a point to you being there and that if you weren't there, there even if it's something microscopic, it would be different. I think that's something that a lot of people strive for. Hi, and welcome to the Louis Diaz podcast, the podcast where you'll meet some of the most fascinating and incredible people from all walks of life. And together, we're inviting you in to be our special guest as we take you through some of their amazing experiences, adventures, and journeys. So sit back, and I hope you enjoy this episode of the Louis Diaz Podcast. Okay, everyone, welcome to another episode of the Louis Diaz Podcast. I have the great pleasure of introducing everyone today to Bulgarian filmmaker Martin Grohovsky. It's it's a real pleasure to have you here. Let me just sort of start off by um, apologizing to the audience because we kind of just left you behind. Martin and I just started talking and uh, I could have possibly just recorded this whole episode without even doing an introduction because we got right into the juicy bits of of our personal lives almost straight away. And I love it when I have a connection with someone like that so quickly. Um, It's always a good sign for things to come. Absolutely, me as well. I think that that's something where maybe only recently do I feel like I can just jump into a conversation and immediately start getting into a bit more difficult topics, I guess, maybe because I've spent so much time interviewing other people. It's never been sort of me who's uh, immediately jumped in and started sharing so much about myself. But recently, I've been trying to focus on that more and more and become more comfortable with it. So for sure. Mm. And, and just to sort of continue, I guess, the introduction part, you're a filmmaker, you're a podcaster, you have one of the biggest podcasts in Bulgaria. If anyone's wondering, the reason why you have sort of the North American accent is because, you know, you grew up in North America for a little while. So there's there's that whole layer as well. And I don't know, I think you've got more strings to your bow than that. I think there's more, there's more to you. I was going to say that you're also a writer because of the way that you narrate your documentaries. It's so poetic that I'm like, oh, he's obviously a writer. I'm going to throw that in there as well. Um, Thank you. <laughs> yeah, maybe you can um, bring the audience up to speed a little bit on who you are and some of the things that I may have missed in the introduction here. Sure. Um, I think most of them you got for sure. I think maybe I would start with writer. That's probably one of the biggest dreams, although one that is still not completely fulfilled. Ever since I was a kid, my big dream was of writing for sure. I would go back home after school every day, especially around the age of maybe between seven years of age and 14 years of age. And the first thing I would do would be to sit on the computer and just sort of write about these fantasy worlds, about uh, basically these travels that I dreamt of going on one day. And for me, filmmaking and photography was never really at the forefront. It was always writing and poetry and long form writing and and journalism as well, which is something that I spent a bit of time doing as well. And basically, videography and photography to some extent sort of came up naturally. I, um, As a kid, I would come back home to my home country, Bulgaria, once a year for the summer. The rest of the time, as you mentioned, I spent in North America and the States and in Canada. And these summers, as of course, for most kids, were just this, you know, this moment that you look forward to all year. You don't really grow up so much during the rest of the year as much as you grow up during the summer, I think, as a kid. Yeah. And so, you know, this utmost anticipation to just get on a plane, to go back home, to spend my summer in a small town here in Bulgaria that's only around 20,000 people. Mm. And that 
town, I guess, that town sort of birthed this need to somehow share it with people outside of writing, just because, I mean, getting my friends at the time to sit down and really look through a long-form piece of writing or whatever about my summer was a lot more difficult than showing them photos or videos. Mm. And basically, one thing led to the next. The first film, in air quotations here, that I've ever done was when I was 16, and it was about my the town that I spend my summers in here in Bulgaria which was for my girlfriend at the time to sort of really bring her into this world here, interviews with my grandparents, with my friends, with mm -hmm. local people that work in the town. And so I realized, I guess, at that point, um, the power of really of really documenting something very personal, something that's without any, without any agenda, without any like ulterior goal, but just to sort of find a way to transfer that emotion and that magic to somebody else who's never seen the place or mm -hmm. never seen the people that you want to talk about. So if... It's a very long story. After that, I, I studied journalism for a bit in Canada. I studied international law in the Netherlands. I started to work a lot in the NGO sector and um, at some points is sort of a, an intern consultant helping NGOs with sort of human rights activists from abroad, looking at how, how to tell their stories, but never really so much in the beginning in the form of photography or videography. But at some point I realized well, actually, from the very beginning of my degree in international law, I realized that that was not something I wanted to do for a living, for sure. As much as there were interesting segments of law, it wasn't for me. And at 19, I started my first company in the Netherlands for documentary work with a close friend at the time. We started pitching to NGOs just because that was the easiest way to do it. We were I was studying international law. He was studying international economics and international politics. And so in that sense, we pitched to a variety of NGOs abroad. One thing led to the next. We started traveling to these places to actually film these stories. So Asia, Africa, traveling around Western Europe as well, of course. And that was sort of this high that went on for a while where we were um, we were very certain that that's what we were going to do. That was the company that was going to grow. We were going to spend the rest of, I don't know, the next 10 years, 20 years doing that. And of course, one of the first lessons that you know I learned, I guess, with that is that how difficult it is to keep a business going a very long time with a friend, how damaging that is to a friendship, how damaging that is to relationships, to everything. If you're not mature enough yet to really handle everything that comes with running a business starting at 19 years of age. And when I was 23, I moved back to Bulgaria, or rather I moved to Bulgaria because I had never been here before for long term, especially except for my summers. And initially I was supposed to come here for two months. Uh, now it's been five years. I came here with the goal of creating a tourism campaign for the country, but more so for myself to share these stories and these people with a wider audience. And that became the biggest tourism campaign in the country that led to partnerships, new clients, new work. And Basically, at this point, I'm spending a lot of my time working on documentaries here in Bulgaria. I work with Canon Europe. I travel for documentaries abroad very often, thankfully, now with different clients and projects. And yeah, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a very sort of overall summary of everything. But I guess, yeah, yeah, it's uh, for sure writing, videography, photography, podcasting. I mean, everything that's tied in with storytelling in one way or another, that's, I mean, that's the goal. And that's something that I'm trying more and more to, um, to find a voice. And I guess everyone is, but uh, it's changing all the time. Yeah, wow. Wow, what an introduction. I was just taking notes while you were filling in the gaps for us there. And I just thought, oh gosh, I've already got so many notes that I, I've taken from the research I've done today. But also, I want to sort of go back to the first documentary that you made. You were 16. And I don't want to touch on sure. that for too long, right? Because obviously, it's a long time ago for, for you. But I guess while I've been watching some of your documentaries today, and let me just tell the audience that there's definitely worse ways you can spend a Saturday than watching Martin Grohovsky documentaries, <laughs> whether it be Kyrgyzstan or Norway or Namibia. 
And I feel like it's interesting because you're continuously talking about evolving your storytelling style, you know, your filmmaking style, having this kind of, I don't know, being on a parallel journey of figuring out how you want to tell stories. But then I was just kind of listening to your introduction and then you talking about being 16 and making a documentary so that you could show people back home what it was like to be in Bulgaria over these sort of beautiful romantic summers um, rather than sort of writing a long form piece as you put it to share with them. And I feel like that is when you set the mold for the storyteller that you, you wanted to be. And I don't know if you've ever deviated too far away from that because I feel like the way that you tell stories and the way that you share things is kind of almost as the same 16 year old telling us about his summer getaway hmm. it's very interesting i um i think you're absolutely right i think that there's one thing that for me is absolutely core to maybe everything that i do and that's that it's all nostalgia driven everything that i do i have this constant longing for for even things that happened i don't know like a month ago it's not just nostalgia for a, a time period that's 10 or 15 years ago i feel nostalgic the moment i leave a country and very often I end up being a lot more emotional, maybe a lot more sentimental than a lot of people that are around me at the time. So even now, I just came back from Kyrgyzstan and one of the last nights I was with a big group sort of at this table and they got these traditional musicians to come out and play traditional Kyrgyz music. And I was probably the only person at that table who really, really got emotionally moved by the music and I was very much affected. And I think it's because I don't so much connect with, of course, nature is, is a big factor, but I think for me, sort of the roots of what it means to be at home is always something that's a big question in my mind. It's, it's been something that I've tried to figure out ever since I was a kid. So especially with this documentary, when I was 16, this video that I did, I mean, the entire idea is just, I guess at the time of trying to find some way to just really explain to somebody what home is for me. And that sounds like a simple thing on the one hand, but on the other hand, it's something that's absolutely inexplicable. It's not something that can be shown with photos or videos or even with words. It's something that, you know, the moment I landed in Bulgaria as a kid, the moment the plane hit the tarmac and that I knew that I was here, I didn't have to disembark the plane. It's the moment you're in, in this geographical space, the moment you can, you know, smell the air, you can hear the, obviously the language, the moment everything sort of comes together. I could have stayed on that plane and I still felt at home, even if I didn't leave it right for the entirety of the summer. So for me, it's this constant feeling of trying to understand other people's perception as well of what is home. Why do people care so much about the places that they live? Why, do, why are people so attached to the places that they live? And that's something that for sure I think I try to analyze a lot in the travel work that I do, even though I have to say that that's not my main work. Most of my main work are things that I don't upload anywhere because it's for obviously clients where they just use it for campaigns or documentary work for NGOs and so on and so forth. But for the personal stuff, for the travel work and the travel content, my relationship to travel is something super complicated because I don't know with 100% certainty right now that I will, I don't know, live the next 10 years in Bulgaria or the next five years. It's always a question of can somewhere else be home? And so maybe in the text that I write and the way that I analyze sort of these trips, I'm constantly looking to answer that question of like, can this be home? And if I have to be in, like directly honest with myself about what I felt here, is there this semblance of comfort? Is this the place where I can imagine moving to? So I guess, yeah, for sure, that 16-year-old self, that need to, on the one hand, share these stories just because I, I want to find some community. I want to find somebody else who says, oh, okay, watching this, I feel like I've been to Namibia or I feel like I've been to Norway or wherever else it might be. That for me is sort of this this driving factor in the same way that when I was 16, I just needed to have this 
validation that somebody else all these kilometers away in Canada at the time would sit and say, you know, I want to go to this 20,000 person town in Bulgaria that I've never heard about. I just, I need this validation, not for myself. I don't know, I guess I'm sort of validating somehow the place or the... Um, or just, I guess, I guess how beautiful is that? I need somebody else to also share that with me. Mm. Enjoying the episode so far? Be sure to follow us and leave us a review on whichever podcast platform you're listening on. Thanks and enjoy the rest of the episode. Yeah, it's super interesting because like um, when I was in France last year, I met this um, guy who was from somewhere around Eastern Europe originally and uh, grew up in Germany and then was living in the southwest of France. And um, we started talking and then he asked me my name. And then he goes, oh, you must be a third culture kid. And I was like, I don't know what that means. And he's like, oh, look up third culture kid. And I brought it up a couple of times because I think there's there's going to be people here that understand what you mean when you say, you know, that, that feeling of home, like trying to explain that feeling yeah. of home. And then there's people that just aren't going to get it. And I think what I've learned over the past 12 months or so since discovering the whole third culture kid thing. Uh, and I'm not sure how familiar you are with that concept. Um, not actually, if you can fill me in a bit as well. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious. I'll, okay, I'll fill you and the audience in because I feel like it's been on my mind so much and I've been talking about it so much that I'm not sure whether it's been on the podcast or off the podcast that I've been talking about it so much <laughs> that I'm like, oh, everyone already knows what I'm talking about here. But basically a third culture kid, like the definition of a third culture kid is someone that grows up in a different culture or country to where their parents grew up which is kind of mm -hmm. um, a broad definition but in a way like let's just say if your parents are bulgarian but they raised you in the united states or in canada then essentially when while you were in canada you were a third culture kid because you had this kind of mm -hmm. home of life and then you had this mm -hmm. um, social construct around you that was completely different to anything that your parents knew or the way that you sort of grew up before you went to school because a lot of foreign parents kind of tend to raise their kids in in the way of their culture up until they send them to school and then they start behaving like you know the local kids if that makes sense um, yeah 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 but one of the things that I started to discover when I was doing heaps of research on third culture kids, because I've been the same as you, you know, like mm. being born, and we were talking about this before our introduction, being born in Venezuela and coming here when I was four, I never fully felt 100% Venezuelan because I grew up here in Australia, but I never felt 100% Australian. And so for me, the whole concept of home because of that and because of being a third culture kid has always been a bit wishy-washy. Like, you know, how do you describe mm. home? And whereas if I try and explain that to someone else who sort of just was born and raised in the one place and their families, you know, generations from there, it's really difficult to explain. Like, it, it's hard. Like, I don't feel like an Aussie. I don't feel like a Venezuelan. But I can't tell you exactly what I feel like. And so I think that there's an element of, you know, that third culture kid that sort of impacts the way you tell stories and that sort of, I guess, that longing to be able to share that feeling of what home is but also mm. i think not only that third culture kid part of it but simultaneously you've gained an appreciation for these beautiful stories that are rarely ever <laughs> told as well and a strong desire to, to tell them so i take notes when i research people right i take a little note a few notes and i drew a line down the center of my page here and on one side of the line i wrote about you becoming a filmmaker a teller of wonderful unique stories and on the other side i wrote learning more and more about who you are and discovering your authentic self in the process 
And the reason that they're on two sides of the page is because while I was watching your films, I couldn't tell what I was more drawn to. I couldn't tell whether I was more drawn to the story that you were trying to tell me or that feeling that I got that you were discovering yourself in that process. I was kind of torn. <laughs> mm. So, yeah. I don't even know if that was a question. It's, that wasn't even a question. I was just rambling. No, no, in. no. No, 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 for sure. It's, it's an interesting observation. I think that's something where right now I'm exactly also at that point with myself where I'm trying to figure out is there a way that the stories I'm telling right now or the projects I want to film in the coming year, for instance, let's say, is there a way to find more answers in those stories from my own life as opposed to them just being something that's external to it? Because as I mentioned, a lot of the projects, maybe like 80% of the projects that I film have very little to do with me. They're more so, I, although some would argue, of course, that everything has to do with you if you're filming it and telling the story. But let's say that they're more traditional form documentary films that have a main character, that have a, an interview of them, sort of a day in the life of, and then these stories that are told for, for a variety of different companies and people and so on. But my point is that with the personal projects that I've been working on, most of them have been tied in with travel, but that's changing now because I really want to get back into sort of long-form documentary films, so hour, hour and a half films about individual characters that I think are very inspiring and their stories should be told. And next year I want to start very more, well, perhaps this year I'm starting with, um, there's a national school of folklore arts here in Bulgaria, and it's uh, a school that's getting less and less students every year but for me it's sort of like the bastion of what it means in many ways to be Bulgarian in terms of the music in terms of the dance in terms of the culture and it's located high up in the mountains in this very small Bulgarian village and there's this one teacher there who's 30 something years old I think where he for me is probably one of the most inspiring people that I've met maybe in my entire time back here or maybe in my entire life even and the type of teacher that he is is sort of the type of teacher that I wish all of us had or or I wish I had rather growing up because it's very much that parent figure in the classroom for these kids that go to a boarding school technically in the mountains to learn you know traditional uh, folklore and arts and music and this is a character where on the one hand of course I find his story just incredibly interesting and I think that for everybody it would be a very interesting story but on the other hand you know this is something where I'm becoming very selective more and more selective with the type of people I want to follow because there's a lot of questions that even with my short conversations with him and and the small films that I have already done with him to some extent there's a lot of questions that I find I answer for myself just through conversations with him whether it's about something like him how he started his family what it means to have a family because that's obviously a big question right now also about looking at you know how do you find motivation within something that's slowly disappearing so you look at sort of these traditions here in bulgaria that are slowly dying out and this is something where you know this person is so motivated so driven and of course i'm not doing something in the field of so much in the field of traditions and folklore and stuff but at the same time you know this spark that you need to, to constantly have motivation you know it could constantly die out for a variety of different reasons that have nothing to do with sort of the national setting or what's going on but a personal one where you just feel like you're not so motivated to do what you're doing anymore or you're getting a bit confused about what is obviously the purpose of the type of stories that you're telling so you know, a character like that, that I could profile for a year, which is the goal, you know, there's obviously this slightly selfish uh, note with the whole thing where I'm really hoping to answer some questions for myself through this entire journey with, with this person. So for sure, I think you very much that dividing line that you have in the notes that you've taken, I think that I'm trying to eliminate it or blur it. And I think that in the next year or two years, I think all of the stories that I want to tell, I'm consciously trying to tell them in order to also answer questions for myself and not just do a one-off film where I say, okay, this will be interesting for an audience, but really sort of do it for myself first and foremost, and then hope that it reaches 
an audience at some point. Yeah. It's funny that you say it's self-serving in a way because it's interesting when we take on these endeavors, these storytelling endeavors or whatever it is in life that you're passionate about. And then, you know, on the one hand, you're doing this expose on someone for a year and you're trying to tell their story. But then somewhere along the line, whether at the beginning or at the end or, you know, in hindsight later on, you realize that it was actually a really self-serving kind of experience to be the one to tell that story or whatever it was. And then it's kind of like, no, actually that makes a lot of sense because we invest ourselves way more in something that we feel like we've got a, a stake in. And mm -hmm. so I feel like if you want to tell someone's story really well, well, best be invested in it for some reason or another because you know that you're going to do the best possible job. So it's kind of like a chicken or the egg kind of thing. It is. And I think it's also something that's also about this element of honesty with yourself. I think we try to be very, or at least the people that are working sort of in the creative industry, it goes one of two ways. I think that a lot of people are very self-centered and are very much looking forward to, you know, what is the next thing that will push my career forward? And that's it. That's the only thing. Or what are the most beautiful shots that I can take? Or how can I, you know, beef up my portfolio in a way where then I'm sure 100% that I will get the clients that I need. And then there's also this other side of it where really, and I think it's a bit of a more difficult position to be in, but there's in my, let's say my close circle of friends where I have maybe one or two people that I, that I film with here in Bulgaria, where we have these type of conversations, but it's a real struggle when you don't care so much about the pure aesthetics of what you're doing. For me, I have never taken a single shot that I've been happy with ever because it's not something that's on my it's on my radar. I haven't studied film. I haven't studied composition. I haven't studied any of these uh, things, neither color grading nor editing. So when I film, it's never this immediate gratification of being like, okay, this is the this is the best shot I could have taken, or this photo is the perfect photo. I've even with um, a previous guest that you have on your podcast of Nicholas when we were in Kyrgyzstan together. This is one of those things where you know I would watch him work, and there's this. Not level of envy, but, you know, I, I look at him and I, and I see how at the end of a morning shoot, he comes back and he's like, okay, I have it. I know that I have it. This is what I needed. And he's happy with it. And this is something that I've never felt. And it's not something that I feel I need to have in my life, that, that emotion. But it is one of those things where it makes the entire process of filmmaking a bit more akin to writing because it is something where people, when they write, I mean, when we're talking about fiction here, there's no way to escape yourself, right? I mean, it's whatever you write, whatever character you create, whatever you know, setting you create, everything is you because it's the only way, it's the only thing you, your mind can come up with that you've already experienced to some extent to make it as believable as possible when you put it on paper. And so in that sense, I think that if you're not satisfied with the everyday shots or with just like getting that one moment captured, but you really are looking for this bigger question, and I hope that, I really hope that doesn't sound pretentious, but you are looking for this more difficult personal question of why am I doing this as opposed to, you know, is this enough for today sort of, right? But what is the long-term goal of this? What am I trying to reach? Then it makes filmmaking a very um, intense process and it makes it something where it's more like therapy than it is aesthetically something that you're just happy with at the end of the day. Mm, yeah, well, and, and like you asking those questions is kind of making me think, uh, you know, why am I doing this? <laughs> you know, mm. It's, um, it's really Absolutely. deep. It's super deep. But, you know, actually, it, it's kind of interesting because I feel like once upon a time, that kind of question would have given me some kind of existential crisis. And that if you had asked me maybe that question, I don't know, maybe even six months ago or even a year ago, or gosh, when I started this podcast, right, I couldn't have given you an answer to that. 
and it would have mm. killed me a little bit on the inside because I, I it would have been you know sort of tearing away at me that question a little bit but i think one of the things that i've sort of come to appreciate in the last day or so of of researching your films um listening to almost that it's not even internal you externalize a bit of the struggle around you know like the stories that you're telling and all of that and then something that one of my guests actually said a little while ago um georgie carpenter entrepreneur builds businesses really good at that kind of stuff a bit more in the corporate world and then had this moment where she was asking herself like why do i do this what what do i love to do she sold a business and she was just in bali just living day to day not having to work and then trying to re-motivate herself to get back into a positive place or like a place of fulfillment in life and the thing that she sort of landed on was that she loves being of service and so i think how that ties into you is that while i was watching your films I was like, no, it feels like you're still trying to figure it out, but I feel like I've figured you out already, that you love telling people's stories. You are there to serve these incredible people that don't have the facilities to tell their own stories. You're doing that for them, and that is a great purpose. You're telling some really rare, unique stories, of culturally rich stories, and you're telling them in really beautiful, poetic, nostalgic kind of ways, and I feel like in that way, you are of service, and that's your purpose almost but you know don't let me tell you <laughs> i think i think it's a and it's an interesting thing you've touched upon which is this idea of being of service i think that's something that i have thought about a lot recently that's a conversation that i've had with a lot of people as well because i think that in the end you know this question of fulfillment the lines are blurred between all of these all these things that we're talking about to extent does it does being of service mean that you have full fulfillment do you reach uh, this being of service through, for instance, actions like telling stories? I mean, these these things are all blurred to some extent, but I think just feeling useful somehow for the world, feeling like there is a point to you being there and that if you weren't there, there even if it's something microscopic, it would be different. I think that's something that a lot of people strive for. And as you said, these stories, I think that when I started filmmaking um, more seriously as a career, when I sort of pulled away from international law and I started to focus full on into filmmaking, one of the first stories or the first groups of stories that I told were, for instance, in Nepal, right after the earthquake. So uh, the survivors of the earthquake, that was something that I worked on at the time with Oxfam in the country. I've told stories of like India's uh, largest free traveling medical camp. I've worked on a lot of projects that are tied in with land rights, farmers' rights, access to education. And, you know, I think that th this is <laughs> this is one of those things that makes uh, this question of where do I want to live long term a bit difficult because, you know, I go to these countries, for instance, I go to India or I go to Nepal, and there's all these people that have never expected anyone to care about their stories at all. You end up in suddenly in their life and... There are a few things I think as beautiful as sort of being able to show somebody a film about their own life and have them realize that the mundane things that they think are boring or that are standard at this point are actually very, very interesting and can be shown very beautifully. So even just somebody working in the field in the morning at sunrise, you know, they do this every day. For them, it's nothing new. But then when they see it and when they can actually hear the sounds, hear their own voice, almost get like this sense that they can touch the actual imagery itself, you know, at that point, there's this transformation that happens that's incredibly moving. And it's and it's probably the main reason I filmed for a very long time, just to get those moments to have somebody react to their own life, which is 
which is an interesting thing. And when I come back to Bulgaria, even though Bulgaria is Eastern Europe, I mean, we're still talking very much so about with the Western world, very developed, a place where, for instance, here people are, as much as I love living here, there is obviously this culture shock when I come back from countries like Nepal or India because I land here and then I'm like, okay, everybody's vying for attention. Everybody's fighting for their voice to be heard. And that's something which is, is a bit exhausting because, you know, you come back here and even yesterday I was in an event here where we're talking about sort of cleanup of the environment here in Bulgaria and sort of these big campaigns and initiatives that are happening. And I'm working on a documentary series for that. And the people that are there, the, the, the pride that they have about, for instance, saying, you know, last year it was raining and it was cold, but still on this one day we went to clean up and, and patting themselves on the back for these things. And that's something where immediately, you know, the stories that people tell themselves about their own lives when you live in a country, even if it's Bulgaria, where they conflate them to be these enormous things that they've done, these enormous stories. And of course, it's way worse in Canada and in the States, and I'm sure in Australia. But like this idea that I've achieved so much and this need to constantly remind yourself of this, that's something that for me is a bit a bit difficult coming back. I really, really prefer those countries where, you know, people, they don't even think so much about their story because they have far and more important things to focus on, like just the day-to-day. -day. Will I have food for the end of the day? Will I... Uh, will I have time for my children? Will I be able to do this and that? And that's something where the more I grow up, I guess, the more those stories for me hold infinitely more meaning than somebody doing something incredibly successful in this part of the world, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. I, I can really appreciate that. It it's like every time I go on LinkedIn and I see all these people and companies patting themselves on the back for like whatever last quarter's growth numbers or welcoming someone new to their, their team or whatever it is. There's kind of something inside me that sort of dies and cringes a little bit when I'm, when I'm on that platform because I think like you, I really love those unsung stories of the mundane things, you know, there's a farmer out there and that farmer's produce is helping everyone get to breakfast or have breakfast to start their days. But no one tells the, the farmer's story, but he's probably one of the most important people in the whole community sort of thing. But I think, um, yeah, it's super interesting that you have come to that sort of realization and that you're at that point. And I think of it in terms of like how the world's evolved so rapidly over the last hundred years you know, the introduction of photography, for example, and then suddenly moving, moving images and then oh, sound and how like then all of that merged together. And like it, it's really if you zoom out on, on modern history, it's like a beautiful symphony of chaos and like wonder. And now we've got to this point where anyone has the at the tip of their fingers the ability to tell stories instantly through smartphones and TikTok. And like you said, there's so many people in society right now that are vying for attention. But I think as the world has gotten smaller and smaller because of that digital revolution or whatever you want to call it, I think what's happened is we've become more and more out of touch with those simple mundane things, as you, as you put it, those beautiful little local stories. And I think right now, it's, there's never been a more important time in history to look at local stories, to tell local stories, to look at localization versus globalization. And in that sense, I think what you're doing is incredibly important. And especially when you're able to sort of turn the footage back 
to the people who you shot it of and they're able to appreciate their own place in this world as well because I, I can almost appreciate that at times they feel like they're lost in this gigantic machine of a world but to have someone come into their space and care about them the way that you do and show them how important what they do every day is keeps them going I guess and possibly even makes them proud of their story absolutely absolutely I think that maybe that's that's something where there's a transition that happens with a lot of people well it, I, actually I don't know if it happens with with a lot of people but within my close circle of friends again with people working in the creative industry for sure I see that happening with a lot of us where you know obviously this push that everyone has to reach as many people as they can to get as many eyes on their work as possible the, the shift that happens at some point when some people keep having that as a goal and that's their main purpose of the work they do just to get as much recognition as possible which of course you know all the best to them I'm not saying that there's a right or a wrong but there is obviously this other side of it where for instance for me I realize more and more as with the example that I gave you and that you just said back that if there is the chance of showing one person but the, the important person the person whose life you're documenting if they can see what you're doing and they can appreciate their own life through that then that really I think should be the only audience that in my case of the type of work I, I'm doing that I'm fighting for that is the main audience that is the life that I know that mm. to some minimal extent I can affect even if it's only for a day but I can have a direct effect on and I can know that with certainty because even if I show a film in a movie theater, of course, very often because I do screenings here in Bulgaria, after that I have conversations with people and a lot of people are, you know, they find some connection to the to the places or to the stories that I show. But it's not to the extent of being 100% certain that in that moment that person has had something shift in their mind as it is with somebody who hasn't expected to ever see their life documented or shown at all. And hmm. actually a, a really good example I can I can give of that, I was just in Kyrgyzstan for the second time and there's this region, Sarijas, it's right between Kyrgyzstan and China and it's this extremely isolated region. You have maybe a house every 200 kilometers there and to get to this region, you need to go through a mountain pass that's 4,000 meters high, you're in the snow in the summer and then you get down to a border checkpoint and suddenly you're in probably one of the wildest regions I think exists maybe, maybe in the world and you travel there and you don't see a person for hours and it's these endless mountain ranges, these endless plains and we went there for the second time and we were driving for around two or three hours after coming down from the mountain and we reached this village called Engilchek and Engilchek used to be a former mining village and it's in the middle of nowhere. It's impossible to even like, I can't, it's like you're on the moon suddenly and you find life on the moon. That's what it really feels like getting there and this village has maybe I don't know, maybe 30, 40 houses, two abandoned apartment buildings and an, a hotel that was being built in the distance and the mines somewhere in the mountains around them. And, you know, this village, if you read online about it, if you read online about Angelchek, everywhere it says that this is a ghost town. And for me, I grew up a lot with this fascination of abandoned places, of why are places abandoned, how are they abandoned, what stories remain there. So, you know, the moment I read Ghost Town, I was, I was immediately drawn to it. And I said, okay, I really want to see this. I want to go there and experience this isolation. And I get there, and in this town, there's 30 families that live there. I think maybe the total population is 150 people right now. But they have one store, which in quotations is a store. They have one school where up until the grade four children go there. The, the town was filled with children. I think maybe there's like 50, 60 kids were there when I went down to see it. 
They have no signal on the phones. They have no radio. They have no TV. They have nothing. They have like three cars in this village. And I get there and immediately, obviously, with the kids, we start heading into the abandoned buildings. They want to take me and show me their village. I start handing out the camera to all these kids because at some point while I was I was taking photos of them, but they were they were very adamant about, no, you're not going to take photos of me, even if they were six or seven years of age and they never get tourists there. And then I said, OK, if I'm not going to take photos, you know, and I put the, the photo on the, on one of the kids next. And I was like, OK, then you then you take photos. I was like, I let, all day you're the photographer. And so this kid got a real kick out of it. And we were traveling around. The village he was introducing me we were mixing russian and kyrgyz as much as i can understand russian and he was introducing me to the different people of the village and we get to this grandfather who's uh, sitting in the center of the village and i'm speaking to this grandfather and one of the things that he said to me that really affected me that i i then wrote down immediately is he said you know it really makes us sad here when people say that we're a ghost town because the community that we have here, the love that we have for each other, he goes, is stronger than any of the big cities in the country. And he goes, when people here don't have food, what do they do? They knock on the next door neighbor and they ask them for food. When people need to have something done, like their car fixed or the rug wash or whatever, they do it publicly. And it was being done right in front of me in the, in the center of the village. And, you know, I've seen communities like this. I've traveled to so many places where uh, these tiny villages with less than 10 people, and I see the extent to which everyone works together. This is nothing new for me, this idea that if, you know, if you have a small community, you work together. But this place in particular, because it's so disconnected from everything, and you need to really make the effort of crossing a very high mountain pass and driving for three hours to get there, and there's nothing else really in terms of life outside of that village and that region and then when he said that, like that really affected me because I started to think about the fact that this grandfather and this community, like they're, they're proud of what they have. It might be very, very little, but they are so proud of the place that they live. And, and I, I wrote it down in my, in my notes and then I think I posted it somewhere, but I wrote that, do we have to reach this extent where all of our towns and our cities become ghost towns for us to really become proud of, of what we have in these communities, right? Because this is something that I also search for a lot when I travel. I want these isolated places. I want to be at the edge of the map. I want to be somewhere where there's 10 people living in a village because then I really feel like I'm somewhere. When I'm in a town with so many different groups of people, in many cases, multicultural groups of people, so many different cultural norms and, and, and different languages. And, you know, this is something that for me, more and more, it's becoming... Um, disinteresting. It's becoming boring. It's 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 something where I don't feel like I'm somewhere new. And so when I go to places like Angio Czech and I'm in the in this town, and first of all, I feel like this is something I've never seen anywhere else, not in this way. But second of all, again, these are the places where you get checked a bit on your beliefs, right? Because going there, my first thought was, ah, oh, this is a ghost town. I'm excited to see a ghost town. But then not for a second did I think in my mind that actually going there with the idea of seeing something that had been abandoned and me getting some sort of excitement from that, you know, that really does hurt a community like this where they don't want to be known as such. They are a strong community. They are not a ghost town. My point with everything being that, you know, these places where, as we as we said, people aren't expecting to have their stories. So they're not expecting for people to stop very often the the type of things that you hear from people are the things that stick the most of you. And for sure, this conversation of this grandfather is something that I'll be thinking about for a long time and what it means to really sort of, I guess, love and feel connected to your community. Mm. I'm just going to pause for a second and let all that sink in. Um, of course. Because <laughs> that was really beautiful. And there's a couple of things. Actually, I kind of realized when you started telling that story that we've gotten so deep so quickly. We're talking about your self-discovery process almost in a way as a filmmaker, as a, as a human being 
first and foremost you know why you also make films and then i forgot like this almost seems like the third sibling of your story is that you go also go on these incredible travel adventures which is i can't believe like it took us 45 minutes to get to <laughs> like a, a travel adventure story because mm. of how deep and personal your other your work is and your your story is but i mean yeah for the audience you just have these like a magnificent collection of travel adventure stories self-discovery and filmmaking aside but then also yeah, listening to you talk about angle check I just couldn't help but feel this sense of irony that in the big cities where we're so connected, people are downloading dozens and dozens of apps onto their smartphones to be more and more connected to each other. And somehow they feel like they're at the peak of human civilization, you know, or modern civilization. But yet you can go to this town that is described as a ghost town. It seems forgotten. It's extremely isolated. And they have probably the strongest core fundamental values on community that you can find anywhere on this planet. I just love that. Like it just fills my heart with joy hearing that story because part of it fills me with hope for humanity. And the other part of it is that it still exists. That vibe is still, it's still here somewhere. Sure, you might have to leave the city and go very, very far away to find it, but it's still here. That one thing that we're all actually searching for, that community, that togetherness, you can still find it somewhere. If you haven't already, find us on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, or TikTok, where you can catch additional content and grace us with your thoughts. Thanks again and enjoy the rest of the episode. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that that's something where I'm very fortunate that I live in Bulgaria. And to be honest, I wouldn't live, I think, anywhere else in Europe than here because Bulgaria, it's quite a small country. So to go from the capital, which is where I'm now, Sofia, to go to the easternmost point of the country, that's a five-hour drive. To go from Sofia to the Rodope Mountains, which are probably our most wild and beautiful mountains, is maybe two hours and a half from Sofia. So, you know, when you go into these mountains, there are so many villages, so many villages where the population is less than 10 people, right? You can completely get lost in this wilderness there. And these people who are very much preserving an old way of life. I've spent a lot of time with shepherds in the mountains of the Radope Mountains. I've gone and, I, and I've spent time with people working, especially with a lot of farmers working in the fields. And this is something where, again, that's why I said I'm, I feel fortunate to be here is because, you know, when you want to feel this sense of connection, when you want to feel this disconnect from exactly what you said, and, and very rightfully so, this constantly manufactured way of trying to form connection here uh, this is the, in the cities, in the big cities, that is completely unnatural. And it's all tied in with, like, technologically, how quickly can we get to somebody as opposed to really sitting down and, and giving somebody the time of the day and, and listening to them properly that's something where here I'm a stone's throw away from an experience like that. And that's maybe why I stayed here so long and I'm still here is because I know that this is something that I, when I need it, I'm, I get on the car and I drive two hours and I'm suddenly in a place like that. And that's something that's really special. And I feel like, unfortunately, it's, it's dying out to some extent in a lot of parts of Europe just because things are becoming a bit more easier, a bit more modern, obviously. So even just looking at the way people farm in, in a lot of parts of Western Europe, right? So it's becoming more modern. Of course, you can still find very traditional style farming and, and very traditional style village experiences. But where the line is that that's touristic and where it's natural is is constantly being changed, right? And constantly being blurred. And here, 
I feel like I'm lucky to be in a country where the village life is very much still kept how it used to be a hundred years ago or even more. And that's really special. So that's something that keeps me here for sure. And that I, and that I'm constantly looking for while I'm back home. Yeah, you really are luck. And you know, you make your own luck, I say. I think it's remarkable in this day and age to find people that appreciate those things and have the awareness that time is ticking, life is short, there's so many different choose-your-own-adventures ways of going about life. But to meet the people that stop and think and can appreciate those little moments, see things on a macro scale and see their place in it is really wonderful. So in that, in that way, I'm just loving this conversation. But I wanted to ask you actually also around your favorite filmmakers. And it's funny because I opened up my Amazon Prime, speaking of big tech, and I, I had saved this film ages ago that I finally this week decided that I wanted to watch. And it was A Lifetime of Endless Summers, the Bruce Brown story. And he, he's the, the filmmaker that made the iconic surf film, The Endless Summer. And I, <laughs> I have this obsession with The Endless Summer too. And, and for a moment there earlier this week, I got to pause and reflect on one of my storytelling heroes and realizing that on my own journey to tell stories as well, that it hasn't been without the influence of these guys that, you know, I should at some point stop reflecting and, and thank them for their influence on me. And I thought, well, watching your films today, they're so you you've got your own signature way of telling stories that you know once you watch one of your films and then you move on to the next one it's like yeah aha uh -huh. mm. this is a martin grohovsky documentary you know you can feel it but where has martin got his style from like who's his hero that's kind of kind of what i've been guessing it's uh it's a good question i think that thankfully my parents from a young age even though neither of them have anything to do with videography or or the type of work that i do but from a young age they've really sort of opened my mind to international cinema. I've spent very little time, maybe as a kid, of course, more so watching Hollywood films and, and Western films, but I've grown up a lot with with Russian cinema, with Iranian cinema, uh, with Turkish cinema as well. And the beautiful thing, especially about Iranian cinema or Iranian cinema, is that the stories that they tell, and I'm not talking here about documentary films, more so just uh, fictional films, the stories that they tell are always incredibly simple. They're very, very much the type of stories that we've been talking about so, so far, about just one conversation, about one small problem, but very realistic problem. We're not talking here, obviously, about superheroes and uh, shootouts and westerns and things like that. We're talking about like uh, one of my favorite films, which is called Children of Heaven. It's an Iranian film where it's the entire story is about this family living in a very small town. And um, at one point, the, the father purchases new shoes for the little girl, but the father's, they're, they're all quite poor. I think the father works as the person who sort of cuts the sugar for the church so that they can put the sugar into the tea. So very poor lifestyle. And he buys new shoes for his daughter. And at one point, the girl loses one of her shoes. But the brother and the sister, I think they're both under the age of 10 because they're so worried about telling their father about the fact that the shoe has been lost. The brother, who has far larger feet, obviously, starts to share with his sister his shoes. And the thing is, they have two split times that they have to go to school. So in the morning, the little girl goes to school. In the afternoon, the brother goes to school. And she has to run back with these giant 
shoes to basically give them to her brother in time so he can get to school on time. And the entire film, it's just about this problem. It's just about the fact that they're afraid to tell their father about the fact that the shoe has been lost, and so they have to split a pair. And there's a lot of films like this. There's a lot of um, Turkish films, for instance, that I like very much. Like there's this one called Winter Sleep, which takes place in uh, Cappadocia. And um, the entire film is just one conversation at a table. There's there's small moments that deviate from that, but almost the entire film is one conversation. And I think that because I've grown up with that type of cinema and because from a young age, obviously as a kid, this wasn't something that always appealed to me. I found them boring as a kid. I found them slow. I didn't. I wanted to watch something more like, I don't know, The Goonies or Indiana Jones or whatever. But the more I grew up, I guess at some point it just clicked that, you know, filming should not be something that is constantly trying to grab your attention. It is switching from shot to shot to shot all the time, like a lot of films do, especially Western films, where the longest, you know, the camera will hold on one scene might be like three or four seconds. And then it's time to move to something else to not lose attention, to not lose attention. And it's the exact opposite with these foreign films that I've grown up with, where a lot of the shots, a shot can last 10 minutes, right? And it could and, and it could be like you're watching a play. And that's something where it teaches you on the one hand, just patience. But on the other hand, in terms of pure storytelling, it really inspires you to see how even something incredibly simple, like one day in a family's life where they're trying to decide if they're selling their house or not, that's something that can be incredibly moving in a way no superhero film will be for me personally, right? And so in that sense, for sure, my inspiration to a huge extent comes from there. I think that's probably the biggest thing. But it also comes very much, I don't, I don't look so much to YouTube or to, um, to specific, for instance, videographers for the way that they tell stories, but I look more so to the passion with which people in these villages and in these places that I've spoken about so far talk about stories, right? Because you look at them and you look at the word choice, you look at their bodily movement, you look at the way their eyes widen when they talk about something very simple, right? I mean, even when I was in different places in Africa, for instance, when I was in Ghana, and you have people coming back to the very small local villages, but those people for that day might have gone to a bigger town or city, right? And they come back and they're so excited and they want to tell about the cars and the noise and the lights and the pollution, just everything. And they want to share all of this. And you know, and you, and you sit there and you can't help but just marvel at the energy with which they tell these stories, right? And so that's something where I think that for me, for sure, a lot of my friends... <laughs> here in Bulgaria sometimes make fun of me because they say that, you know, I very often like to tell certain stories over and over again with new people. And, and sometimes there'll be a group setting where half the group will be like, we've heard this. Okay. You know, can you tell this at another time? But it's just because I have this need to sort of repeat and, and perfect and say it in another way and make sure that I get all the emotion across from a certain moment. Because for me, it was such a powerful and beautiful moment. And I just want to make sure that people that I'm telling it to understand it. And so sometimes I do repeat myself. Sometimes I do tell stories again. So yeah, when it comes to inspiration, again, just that that foreign cinema that I've grown up with, especially from those countries that I mentioned. And of course, the stories that I've heard that are passed down from people. And I think that for me, one of the most beautiful things is traveling to a country where people still believe in magic. I think that's something where, mm. I don't know, I, I really, really, really value that. When I was in Ghana, uh, voodoo culture is very strong there and people very much believe in that. And it guides a lot of the actions of people. It changes a lot of sort of the, the way society is structured as well, what somebody can do, cannot do. Where do the witches live in the north? How do they affect everything that's going on? People are afraid to do certain things. But, you know, it's one of those things where I go there and not for a second do I feel like, oh, this is something that shouldn't be this way. Or like, I feel sorry that people are so controlled by, by something like voodoo. 
No, I, I, to some extent, I'm like, I wish that more of the world was built upon this, I believe in magic, right? Like I wish that in our part of the world here in Bulgaria, there's a bit of it, especially in the Eastern part of the country in the South, there's these very pagan beliefs that are still alive here, which I really enjoy going and seeing, but just this idea that not everything has to be explained, right? Not everything has to have an answer to it. And you can live a large part of your life not wanting to know the truth about something. And that's something that I, uh, I don't know, maybe especially somebody who worked for a tiny bit in the field of journalism and don't want to do it again. Maybe I do like this inexplicable, this, this non-desire to, to have an answer for something. I think I do, I do respect that. Oh God, that was good. Yes. <laughs> you know, um, the reason, uh, and People back home listening to this right now can't see us, but you probably see me looking down a lot and I'm, I've got my pen and I'm writing as you talk. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> I it's imagine. funny because the notepad that I mentioned earlier, I've still got in front of me and I'm still kind of adding to it here. And let me share a couple of things that I wrote with you because you've actually funnily enough, almost exactly touched on some of the things that I wrote before coming to this conversation, which is funny. The way I feel you tell stories is that you're constantly trying to maximize impact of whichever facet of the story, whether it be the narration, like the the words that you use and your appreciation for the words that other people use obviously came through just then as well. And then also that your sound design, like the sound that you use, like dramatic piano and strings, it's just like every single facet of your storytelling style is designed for maximum impact, I think. And then while we have been talking, I wrote down responsibility. I felt like you feel like you have a responsibility to tell and share these stories. But the reason I've gone on this really random tangent around this little notepad that I've got and all these things that I've written down is because I feel like you just completed it for me. When you talked just then about believing in magic and having mm. an appreciation for I wrote down belief in magic, full stop, I'm done writing because that's it. I feel like, yes, you do believe in magic and it comes across in absolutely everything you do, how you speak, your films, everything. There's some something magical about it. And I'm just like, yes, thank you. Yeah. Thank you for filling in that gap. <laughs> Uh, that's, uh, thank you. I mean, that, that's, uh, that's a huge, huge compliment. And I'm really happy that that's sort of the, the conclusion, or at least the line that you've written down that summarizes it. I think that that's something that for sure, even for me, just hearing that back, you know, it, it's something that sounds different when somebody else says it, because I can talk endlessly about this and I can talk about how I searched for it and how it's something that really drives me. But now even just listening to you say that, I start to form other connections in my mind that, that completely make sense. And that suddenly somehow I've just answered another question for myself, which is that recently I've been having a lot of trouble with traveling because I've started to feel like I'm not traveling in the way that I should. You know, I travel and I film these stories, but for me, my favorite traveling that I've ever done has always been when I'm alone, when I'm completely alone, when I have no particular goal. I have some general idea of what I want to do, but no particular goal. And this is a bit of a tangent to get to the main point that I'm trying to get to, but this March, I was in Vietnam for a month, and the first two weeks, I was there alone, and then the, the next two weeks, my girlfriend came to visit me, and those first two weeks when I was alone, there was this moment when I was up in the north of Vietnam, which is probably one of the most beautiful places in the entire world for me, the northern mountains there right on the border with China. I was going on a motorcycle tour, and I stopped at one point, and I you know, parked the motorcycle on the side of the road, and I sat on the edge of this cliff, and in front of me, 
maybe there were 10 different layers of mountains sort of stretching out into China, varying shades of blue. You have this endless valley below you. And I stood there and I thought about the fact that I haven't in a very long time, just because I'm on the one hand capturing everything through a camera, on the other hand, usually there with a purpose to film something within a time frame. And I sat there and I thought to myself, how long has it been since I've really tried to just with my eyes sort of take in something and realize where I am? And that had been something that I hadn't done in a long time. I was staring down at this valley and I saw these people coming out of their houses far in the distance. And I told myself, okay, I'll sit here for half an hour, 45 minutes, and I will just try and imagine how far these people are from me. And in my mind, I thought, okay, maybe from the house up to the ridge where I'm at, it's going to take them 45 minutes. And then 45 minutes passed, and I realized that I hadn't even made one-tenth of the journey. And this was something where they were constantly moving, but it was just such an incomprehensible distance from me that in my mind, it didn't seem far, but it was incredibly far. And I stared at everything, and I thought about how often this happens where... You know, we sit there and we take something in and we reach these conclusions about what we're looking at and how we're interpreting it. And we don't actually stop long enough to really look at what is actually going on. And I remember I sat there and I said, OK, if there's one thing from this entire trip that I want from this experience right now, I just want to remember one thing. I just want to remember this sense of scale and I want to remember this distance from me to the person down there. I want to really feel that. And even when I'm gone and I'm not in the country anymore, I want to be able to feel that emotion. And I focused on that. I stayed there for an hour. I focused on that. I got on the motorcycle. And, you know, the moment that I turned on the motorcycle and I started driving, I forgot it, right? Like it just completely evaporated this feeling. And I focused so hard on trying to retain it. And yet it was gone. And it was very therapeutic in a way because I started to realize that really we're not meant to feel everything. You know, I think that I very often fall into this trap of feeling like I haven't experienced enough or I haven't fully enjoyed something or I haven't gathered all the magic that we're talking about, you know, from an experience. And that's something that I think I'm coming to terms with is that I need to accept that there are experiences in life that should be like that, but it can't be like that all the time. And it can't constantly be this full force, constant feeling that I'm in some surreal alternate reality and and, and being able to grasp everything. And I had that experience with Venezuela. This is the main point that I wanted to get to is that when I was in Venezuela, I went to the top of Angel Falls and there are less than 200 people in the entire world in all of history that have stepped where I stepped along with the small group of people that we were at because you need permission from the local tribes. You need to be able to have really good connections and you need a very good helicopter pilot to take you up there to that waterfall. And so when I got up there and, you know, I thought to myself the whole time because we were supposed to repel with ropes down the side of the of the waterfall and that didn't happen because a really strong storm started and, and basically we had to have an emergency helicopter take us down from the waterfall. But I stood up there and I was gazing at Angel Falls with more water than our guide who had been doing it for 20 something years had ever seen. Like it was incredibly powerful. And I stood there staring at this endless valley and just really, again, trying to put myself in that mental state that I was in in Vietnam, where I was like, I need to understand what I'm seeing right now. Like, I really, I need to try and grasp this. But the problem is that because there were so many people, because there were so many uh, guests with me who we were doing this together as part of an organized expedition, everybody was talking or doing something. And there was never this moment where I could really be alone with the with this element and just try to to understand it. And you know, it's, it's one of those things where when I came back from Venezuela, I was really frustrated, but I wasn't frustrated because I didn't get to do the rappel down the waterfall, which was going to be the most intense thing of the whole trip. I was just frustrated because I had the experience to see something that such a small, incomprehensibly small percentile of the world has seen. 
And yet I came away feeling that it was just the subsequent place that I've seen, right? And I think that that's something where the answer that I found for myself now with what you said about magic is I really, that is what I'm looking for there. You know, I'm looking for this feeling that the world somehow still exists within the realm of magic. And I think that now looking back at it, the storms that we had, these incredibly vicious storms for all of the nights that stopped us from being able to repel, that was something where our guide came and he said, you know, in my 20-something years of doing this, I have never seen storms like this, right? This is the first time this has happened. And I find some comfort in the fact that maybe that was sort of the element of the gods or maybe that was something that just had to be like that. Maybe we weren't the right group. Maybe we weren't up there at the right time. Maybe we weren't supposed to do this, right? So even that, for me, there's a comfort in thinking, no, it wasn't bad luck, but no, it was meant to be like that. And that was just because there was some higher force at play, you know, that, that made it so. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I love that reframing of what the magic could have actually been rather than what you thought it was going to be. And to get to a place where you're asking yourself those questions and you're having those reflections, like you're close, man. You're like, you're really close. Whatever it is you're looking for, like you're, you're almost there. <laughs> you're right there. You know, you're on the edge. I hope that. so. Um, <laughs> Thank you. But I also so. I, I kind of couldn't help but wonder if you're constantly wanting or needing at times to bring your camera and your your equipment to capture these places with you is maybe even detracting from your ability to be that fully present it's it's something that i that i think about a lot it's something that for me when i go to film a story especially if it's a human story very often the first day that i spend with these people or maybe even more two or three days i don't have any equipment because i really want them to see me as somebody who's not just a camera operator who's coming in to take a story so for sure, I very consciously do that. That being said, it's been, I, I can't, I don't even remember the last time, maybe in the last 10 years of travel or a bit more, I have never traveled anywhere without equipment. Even if it's just like a film camera, which I do bring a film camera with me very often, I need to know that there is some documentation happening, which is something that maybe I need to change in my next travel. Maybe I only need to go with um, a notepad, but even that will be some form of documenting, right? Um I don't know. It's I, I do think about that quite often. I think about whether it detracts or not. But at the same time, you know, for me coming back and looking through whatever it is that I've captured and then really having some time alone, unlike, for instance, in Venezuela, where I was surrounded by people having some time alone to look at this footage and try to feel this emotion, it does work very therapeutically because in the end, I reach conclusions that I wouldn't have reached if I didn't have the footage to look back on and to really sort of listen to it and put on headphones and hear the waterfall and, and hear the sounds of the birds and the insects and things that I didn't focus so much on while I was there. So even if it's just for myself and it doesn't see the light of day, which a lot of the things that I've worked on have been like that, even that is okay. Just to know that I have something for myself that then I can look back on and maybe 10 years down the road, that will have some impact that it can't have now, right? So I think about that a lot, but it's a very... It's a very conscious thing as well with this idea of not going in immediately with equipment because this is a very short aside, but when I was in Nepal right after the earthquake, I had the ability to go into a, a brick factory where there were children working there between the age of three and seven. And, you know, this was a very difficult experience. I was 21 at the time, and I went in very much with the idea that I was the right person to tell this story and that I needed to tell this story and I needed to get it to the, the right people and so on and so forth. And I went into this brick factory illegally while the owner wasn't there. And I spent a good three or four hours running around and taking photos of kids. But 
entire time in my mind, you know, the most important thing was like, okay, how am I composing this? What is the light like? Do I need more kids? Do I need less kids? Do I need portraits? Do I like, I mean, it was constantly this technical uh, bullshit <laughs> for lack of a better word, where in my mind I was saying, okay, how do I get the best story possible out of this? But I left this place after three hours there. Some of the kids invited me to their homes where they were these very simple brick homes where they didn't have anything in there except a gas stove and, and some rice. And they would, you know, try to make some rice for me and, and try and engage in conversation. But I was so worried about, will the owner come back? Of course, I'm not allowed to be here. I need more photos. I need more stories to tell and so on and so forth. And, you know, I left this place and I got back to the apartment or the Airbnb that I was renting in Kathmandu. And I sat down at the computer and I started looking at all these photos. And in my mind, as I'm, you know, booting up, Photoshop or whatever else it is at the time. And I was like, okay, now I need to think about shading and I need to think about light and composition. And I sat there looking at these photos. And for the first time, you know, I actually had a moment where I was staring at length with a kid, right? And it wasn't just like, okay, here's a photo. Let's go to the next. Let's go to the next. But I was actually just staring at it. And I had this complete breakdown where I was just, I was sobbing for, I don't know, for, for the entire night. And I thought about the fact that I have to stop working on photography like I that that was before I was into videography I need to stop taking photos because clearly I haven't matured to the point where I can go in there and realize what I'm doing which is essentially you're taking a part of someone with you right like you're taking their their gaze or you're taking their story right and you can't go in and just expect that without any conversation without any engagement it's your right to do this right and in that sense that's what I I think I love so much about video is that there is no way if I want to tell a video story, one shot is not going to cut it in most cases, right? I need to engage and I need to be there for hours or days or weeks. And, you know, that is something where you have a far more intimate relationship in many cases, whether you want to or not with people, just because that's the nature of video. And of course, very good professional photographers, documentary photographers very often do the same thing. But as somebody at that time who was just starting to get into either photography or video, video just made more sense because it forced me into this state of mind where it's like, okay, I need to be present, as you said, I need to be there for these people as a human being before I'm there as somebody who is telling a story and a photographer, a videographer or whatever. And that was very moving. And that was something that like fundamentally changed the way I think that I that I approach human stories and people and experiences like that. Mm. Yeah, it was almost like a devil's advocate style question that I asked, because I do feel when you go somewhere with a purpose and with the ability to capture something that it can often make you more present. And so, yeah, I love the story there that you told because it sounds like your story's really evolved, like your journey into this storytelling world that has had its evolution and its realizations and your pursuit of trying to be the best possible storyteller hasn't been without those moments where you've kind of face palmed and gone, oh, I could have done that better, which is great because you look at your work and you go, God damn, that's perfect. <laughs> it's just beautiful. Thank you again. I'm actually shocked that you said that you hadn't studied videography or film or anything like that because the footage is just like, hmm. Pretty good. Yeah. You but you already know that. And yeah, I'm super impressed. And by the way, we should I mean, you've already given Nick uh glued a shout out and I failed earlier to set, to tell the audience that the reason you and I are chatting out is because Nicholas Glued told me that he's got this really super talented uh, videographer friend who's, you know, an incredible storyteller that I should definitely have on the podcast and I just want to say big ups to uh, Nick Glued because he was totally right. I mean, I've enjoyed every bit of this conversation. Me as well. And thank you to Nicholas as well. 
yeah, yeah. It, it's so rare to meet someone that, that has such a, a grand capacity for self-reflection, you know, constantly asking yourself questions. I feel like that's the essence of humility. And the that word humility has been coming up more and more on this podcast. And I think maybe I should just call it the humility podcast, maybe. Um, <laughs> but uh, I feel like I'm constantly searching for those beautiful stories that have those elements of humility. And I think that you really epitomize that with the way that you tell your story. Thank you very much. I really, really, really appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. And we barely knew each well, well, we didn't know each other at all before coming onto this chat, but I feel like I know, like, I feel like I could, could I almost call you a friend now? I feel like I don't talk this deep with any of my actual friends. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. For sure. I, I feel the same way. And it's, it's interesting because in the sense that we were talking about, you know, when, when somebody's, for instance, writing or, or doing work like that, how it's difficult to escape themselves with the type of questions that you ask as well. It's obviously, as you said in the very beginning, or maybe our chat before we started recording, but also there is this, this element of seeing also what type of questions you want to answer for yourself and what you're looking for and what you're trying to get to the, to the bottom of. So for me as well, it was an interesting sort of introspective experience listening to you ask these questions as well and sort of look at how you're framing them and what you're basing them off of so for me it was uh it was interesting as well and i feel like i know you a bit better as well now yeah yeah it's I, I could do this all day with you i know that you if anyone's up for it it's you because you've got so many stories and i'm wondering if there's any sort of advice that you might have through your journey of you know discovering and and getting into filmmaking and telling these great stories that you might have for people that are on the fence about maybe what to do with themselves uh yeah i think <laughs> Uh, I'm always very careful when I give advice because I understand that I, I look back at the advice that I've been given in my life and I realize I followed almost none of it. So it's something where, of course, I do believe that no matter what somebody says to you until you've experienced it yourself, there's no way to know how it'll affect you or not, which is obviously very cliche, but true. But the two things that I think I have realized, one of them is that, which is very much sort of my personal journey being back here in Bulgaria is that a lot of people have these grand ideas of where they need to go, for instance, with something like storytelling or with their work or with their dreams and how everybody's always told to dream big and, and just imagine if you can, you know, get to the other side of the world or if you can see all these different people that you never imagined to see or travel or whatever. But really, for me, probably the most important trip that I've had was the one that I've done here in my home country and the one that was all about discovering my roots and trying to understand what it meant to be at home. And now because I don't have any grandparents left who were basically the main pillar in that feeling of home, it was very much a question of like, how do I rediscover this feeling? Where do I find it? And what does it mean to be Bulgarian? What does it mean to be from this part of the world? So I would say that one of the most important things is before anybody starts dreaming big, it really is important to look at what's in your own backyard, because very often these stories that will really inspire you and push you to go somewhere new, if you're thinking are found less than an hour's drive away, or they're even found in your own city. So it doesn't have to be something exotic or something on the other side of the world. So I think that's really important. And the other thing that if this is something that is just this ultimate truth that I think everyone repeats all the time, but it is important to reinforce it and really do focus on this. And, and that is that things are not going to always happen when you want them to happen. Like that is something that I've had to struggle with very much for the last years, because coming back to Bulgaria in my first year here, creating this tourism campaign that I made for Bulgaria, it was 24-7 interviews, 24-7 uh, spotlight and magazine articles and newspapers and all this stuff that 
at the time, it was really difficult for me then to try and do something more intimate and personal, but that didn't have such a big audience because suddenly I lost this constant feedback of people, you know, saying, oh, we like this, we want to see this, we want to whatever. And so in that sense, I, I had a bit of a difficult three years then where a lot of the things that I was working on, I had to accept that the reason I was doing them wasn't for this immediate gratification today, but it was more so for, first of all, getting to know myself better. And second of all, having them reach the right people and not necessarily a lot of people, as I mentioned while we were talking earlier. And so in that sense, the idea that things will come with time, it was the same with that. And it was the same even with my solo trip that I did in Vietnam in March. I had been planning that trip for three years. And when it finally came time to get on that plane, I was thinking to myself, oh, but I missed maybe the point in my mental space and in my life when I was supposed to be in Vietnam alone. Maybe now I'm not going to look at it and gather as much from it as I would have three years ago or two years ago or even a year ago. And I realized, like with most things, that I ended up being in that country at the exact time that I was supposed to be there. And I took exactly what I needed to take from that country. And so in that sense, again, nothing is supposed to happen at a particular moment. Things happen when, when they happen. There's no point pushing it to happen earlier because in the end you might really lose out on everything that that will change within you if you had only let it happen at a later point right so those two things i think are probably the main things that i've i guess i've learned over the last years yeah yeah i love that advice super good if people want to learn more about you they can find you definitely on instagram at m grahovsky uh, and yes. your youtube channel uh, and your Facebook page as well, where I recommend uh, for anyone listening that you watch the five years in five minutes film that you recommended to me if you want to learn more about Martin. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. And also, the only thing that I'll add to that is that I am very open to uh, having conversations, to talking. So if anybody wants to shoot me a message anywhere, whether that's on Instagram, YouTube or Facebook, I'm always uh, I'm always up for that. So um always interested in meeting new people and hearing new stories as well so for sure. yeah yeah i can i can vouch for that you've been super accessible really such a great um, experience with you as a guest and it's just you've made this super easy it's been an absolute pleasure to have you martin and um i, I can't wait to actually meet you in person someday you're very very welcome in bulgaria and i uh and i'm sure at some point our paths will cross but uh for sure you have a place to stay here <laughs> bulgaria has just shot up in the list of countries i want to visit at least 20 spots there we go that's been my goal for the last 10 years of my life so <laughs> thank you for reaffirming that <laughs> no awesome thanks martin thank you really great thank you thank you as well we'd love to know what you thought of that episode of the louis diaz podcast you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and even TikTok to let us know. And be sure to follow, subscribe, and leave us a review on Spotify, where you can catch some of our other really great episodes. Thanks for listening, and catch you next time.